Good morning. This morning's passage comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. It can be found on page 871 of the Black Chair Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Uh, my name is Godwin. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Church and uh, recognize most of you, maybe not all of you, but uh, welcome to Faith Church. And uh, this is our final Sunday in this um, conversion series, which hopefully has been edifying to you. Uh, and, and we're going to finish off by talking about the corporate application of this doctrine of conversion. What does this mean for the church? I want you to imagine a church with me, a church that absolutely loves Jesus has pretty good doctrine, gives generously to missions, where people want to care for each other and share the gospel with outsiders. God's word is taught faithfully. Uh, occasionally, you'll see new converts who will then get baptized. And, and so on the surface, as you're kind of walking into this church, this imaginary church, it, it seems like things are going pretty well. But as you linger within this church, over time, a few things seem to be a bit odd. You run into Tony. Seems like a nice guy. He's teaching one of the adult Sunday school classes, but he's not a member. The elders in congregation haven't recognized his conversion, uh, but you trust them. I mean, you're the new guy after all, right? Then you find out after you get to know him a little bit that he has a serious problem with pornography, and you're the only one who knows. A few weeks later, you talk to Michelle, your daughter's Sunday school teacher. She also seems really kind, and over time, you get to know her better, and you find out that she believes pretty much many of the things you believe from the Bible, except she's kind of squishy on sexual ethics. Makes you feel uncomfortable because she's teaching your daughter. You wonder if the church knows. You wonder if the elders know. Is anyone concerned about Michelle? Months down the road, as you've interacted with lots of people and gotten to know this church, um, you come to find out that there have been a number of divorces in the church. Most of these did not have biblical grounds for divorce either. So some just kind of fell out of love or grew bored with their spouse or couldn't endure their spouse's quirks and weaknesses and sins. And, and what bugs you is that everyone, including the pastors and elders, seemed to think this was kind of okay or normal. Now, of course, no one wanted the divorce to occur, but what could they actually do about it? 
I can think of many churches that have stories like this. You know, we know there's something off, but what's the core? What's missing? What's the pathology here? You notice the, the subtitle of our series, it says, How God Creates a People. Christianity isn't a solo sport. God draws a people to himself through Jesus, and it's not like he sends them out to play spiritual solitaire after that until they die. He draws them into this entity called the church, the church universal, but also the church local. And these local churches have a very distinct authority, and from this authority is derived some very particular responsibilities. So what's missing in that imaginary church? My answer to that question is the title of the sermon, The Keys of the Kingdom. No one is taking seriously, no one is putting to use the keys of the kingdom. That's my contention this morning. Now, in week one, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the new birth as we looked at this conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, and we saw that, hey, in order to enter God's kingdom, we must be born again by the Spirit. Last week, we talked about how God summons people to faith and repentance, to repentance and faith. And this week, today, we're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom. So I mentioned earlier, this is the corporate application of the doctrine of conversion. You'll see the main point on your screen. Don't lose the keys of the kingdom. Churches that make good use of the keys will grow strong and healthy. And don't misplace the keys. Churches that make good use of these keys, proper use of the keys, will grow strong and healthy. This is going to be a different kind of message. It's going to be a little bit more topical in feel. Um, and we'll look at the passage that was just read uh, at, at the beginning. But we're going to kind of, I'm going to ask and answer three questions. The first question is, what are the keys? Second question is, how do we use the keys? And then lastly, why are the keys important? Okay. And you'll see that on your screen. So three questions about the keys. Here's the first one. What are the keys? And let me give you just a quick answer to start out our, uh, our, our first point here. Here's a quick answer to that question. Then we're going to take some time to unpack it. The keys of the kingdom are the authority Jesus has given to the church to recognize true gospel confession and true gospel confessors. Okay? I'll say it one more time, and we're going to come back to this, but this is really important. The keys of the kingdom, as you see in this passage, are the authority Jesus has given to the church, not papal authority, we'll get to that, given to the church to recognize true gospel confession and true gospel confessors. Now, we're going to build up to that. I want, wanted to give you that up front, okay? So let's consider kind of the logic of, of, of Jesus' teaching here, okay? Uh, three kind of sub-points under this question or three kind of steps, okay? So we're going to build. Here's the first thing we see. We see Peter, the confessor. We see Peter, the confessor, in verses 13 through 16. So Jesus poses this very serious, very provocative question. Who do you say I am? Forget what the crowds think. What about you guys, the disciples? And notice Peter, more clearly than ever before, he declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, the last time the disciples called Jesus Son of God was after he came to them walking on water, after he called himself, I am. So Peter's kind of pulling it all together, and he's confessing, in effect, Jesus, I know who you are now. You are Israel's long-promised king, the Messiah, and you are God himself. So this moment in the Gospel of Matthew, this is an absolutely stunning and significant moment. 
Last week, we talked about the basis of our entry into God's kingdom being faith and repentance, repentance and faith. Peter's confession here doesn't necessarily signal the moment of his conversion, and yet this is a paradigmatic moment. This is a paradigm-setting moment. This moment of confessing Jesus accurately sets the stage for every future confessor of Jesus. Peter is the example. You cannot enter God's kingdom unless you truly confess, just like Peter did, that Jesus is God's Son, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. Now, if you kind of know Jesus and kind of follow his ways and kind of recognize him as a historical figure, but you fudge on some important things about Jesus, that's not a true confession. There must be clarity. There must be clarity in your mind and heart around the person and work of Jesus. Peter sets the stage for every true confessor to follow. Because that's the first step. Peter uh, is a confessor, and he sets the stage. Let's look at the next step in Jesus' logic. Look at verse 18 with me. We see that Jesus wants to build the church on true confessors. Verse 18 says, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There's only two times Jesus mentions in the Gospel of Mark this idea of church. This is the first time. This is a significant moment. And, and once Peter kind of confesses Jesus to be the divine Messiah, it's like the go order in heaven has been given. Jesus, the king, begins to act with this kind of divine and royal authority. And what is the first thing that he does? He starts to talk about the church. He starts to establish the church. The church is his royal embassy on earth. Local churches are God's heavenly embassy. What's an embassy, friends? It's an officially sanctioned outpost of one nation inside the borders of another nation, right? An embassy represents and speaks for its nation. It acts as a proxy, and local churches are very much like this. They're outposts of heaven. Of course, they're situated here on earth. And that's why sometimes as Christians, we feel like we're living as exiles, right? We're not home. We're citizens of another kingdom. And, uh, you know, we're, we're in foreign uh, soil, and it's scary. It's scary because this foreign nation has foreign laws. It makes us nervous. It makes us have to draw lines in the sand sometimes and have to negotiate all of that. And yet, stepping into the church, stepping into the embassy of heaven, it feels safe, doesn't it? So we come here Sunday after Sunday. You can touch heaven. You can experience a different king. You can experience King Jesus when you come to church. You sit under his word. But of course, you're still on foreign soil. Friends, every time you come to church, this is what it's like, right? You, you feel the safety, the people of God who are sitting under the word of the king. This is the only place where heaven touches earth. Go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. You see this garden kingdom, and you see God walking with Adam and Eve. Heaven was touching earth. So you fast forward to the tabernacle and the temple. You see this most holy of holy places, right? Right in the middle of the tabernacle or the temple where the Ark of the Covenant is. And there's the mercy seat, which is said by the, in the scripture says, it is the footstool of God, as if he's in the heavens and his feet are resting on earth. And, and so Israel had God's presence. Heaven was touching earth. And of course, as we consider Jesus, Jesus, God's very own son, the Messiah, right? It's heaven touching earth. Well, friends, local churches are God's heavenly assemblies. It's a wonderful thing. Churches can be teaser trailers of heaven. 
So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, I'm building this, this heavenly assembly. I'm building this heavenly assembly. Notice it says, on the rock. My friends, this is no proof text for papal authority. On this rock does not mean Peter. On this rock means on what Peter has just done. Okay, God will build his church on true confessions and true confessors like Peter. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is such an encouraging verse. Look at the end of verse 18. He says, I'll also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So friends, if you're looking for a word of encouragement, let me encourage you right now. You may have walked into this church feeling defeated, discouraged, despondent, under a heavy weight, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless. Jesus is reminding us, God's word is reminding us this morning that if we are attached to Christ by faith, if we are connected to a church by faith, what we're connected to will not fail. Nothing, absolutely nothing, right? Not the forces of hell, not the worst political plots, not the most progressive ideas, not the Taliban, nor the tempter himself can prevail against a church that's made up of true confessors. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. You're here this morning, part of the church, part of what God's doing. And the final step in Jesus' logic, so this is kind of like step three, sub point three, we see that the keys of the kingdom are used to bind and to loose. Notice verses 19 and following. Now, what does that mean? You know, oftentimes we look at a passage like this, I don't know about you, but, you know, I kind of get that Peter-Jesus inter- interaction about who do you say I am and you know, you're Christ. Okay, well, we get that. We get this part about, hey, I'm building my church and, and the gates of Hades won't prevail. Cool, I get that. And you're like, what? You know, well, we're going to try to really dig in here, okay? This is very important, a uh, very important passage. So I want you to follow the logic here. And Peter's a true confessor. Jesus will build his church on true confessors like Peter. And now these keys are given to bind and to loose. Now, given to who? Peter and the apostles? Well, yeah, in the first century, that was true. But they're not the only people to receive the keys. Flip over to Matthew 18. So just one page over, Matthew 18. Look at verses 15 through 20. Now, this is that great passage on church discipline. But I want you to notice some things. There are three rounds of evaluation and judgment around a person's unrepentant sin. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. There's the first round. Here's round two. But if you won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. There's round two. Now look at verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. Here's the second use of church by Jesus in the gospel of Matthew. He brings the church, the the assembly, the gathered people, the congregation. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, Let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So what we see here, just right off the bat, notice round three, the church is involved. The whole congregation is the final court of appeal for evaluation and judgment, right? Now look at verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. That sounds familiar, right? That's our pastor back in Matthew 16. What is he saying? I mean, he's using you there, by the way. That's plural. So Jesus is getting a little Southern here, okay? 
So whatever y'all bind on earth and whatever y'all loose on earth, that's what he's saying. And he's saying that the keys of the kingdom are given to the gathered church. So who has the authority to remove someone from membership? The church, the congregation, not the pope, not the elders, not a general assembly, not a group of regional elders. It's the congregation. And so friends, here's, I want to raise the dignity of every member here at Faith Church. I want you to walk out of here by God's grace, by his spirit, feeling like, wow, I've got an important job to do, okay? You've got such a key job to do. The keys of the kingdom are given to Faith Church. So we got this great job. What's that job? What does it mean to bind? What does it mean to loose? Well, churches have the authority to evaluate and recognize a true gospel confession and a life and to pronounce judgment on heaven's behalf. Yeah, I think this person is a true confessor of Jesus. No, this, this person is probably not or not yet a true confessor of Jesus. Like a courtroom judge, you can think about it that way. A judge doesn't make the laws. He, he, he doesn't make someone guilty or make someone innocent, right? He interprets the laws. He interprets the person, and then he pronounces a judgment, right? That's what the congregation is called to do. We don't create the gospel we don't make someone a Christian, right? That's what we've talked about the last couple of weeks. Our job is the job of recognition. You can think about it that way. Recognize what a true confession is. This is why the congregation is, is who's called to vote on things like the statement of faith and, and other kind of important doctrinal matters, but also recognize what a true confessor is. So we listen to what someone is confessing. We consider their life. And yeah, we render a judgment together as a congregation. Practically, we have the authority together to bring someone into the church, that's membership, and to cast someone out of membership, that's discipline. Again, our job is the job of recognition, okay? So what are the keys? Let's go back to our definition, see whether we can put this together. The keys of the kingdom are the authority Jesus has given to the church to recognize true confession and true confessors, Okay? So we've done a lot of kind of heady work. I want to get practical now, okay? So what are the keys? Here's the second question. How do we use the keys? How do we use the keys? Let me give you three applications for what it looks like for a church to bind and to loose, okay? The first one is this, three subpoints here. Recognize regenerate Christians. Recognize regenerate Christians. How do we do this? Through practicing membership. You're wondering like, why does this church talk about membership? more than maybe my last church. Well, it's because of the keys of the kingdom. It's because of what we're seeing here. So one of the ways that we can uh, recognize regenerate Christians and practice and use the keys is to practice membership. But there's another way, and that's through offering the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is how we use the keys. Michael Lawrence in that little yellow book that's on the pastor's table conversion, he says this, baptism is the first word of public assurance that other people agree with your profession. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're helping people put on the Team Jesus jersey, right? We're recognizing that you are a true confessor and that you are now part of us. We should understand that baptism is not just a personal thing. It's a very corporate thing. You know, it's not just a new convert obeying Jesus privately. It's a new convert being recognized by the church publicly. So we should think of baptism as the initiatory act into the church universal and into the church local. I mean, think about just, you know, companies. I was a 
I was in a fraternity in college. You know, all of these different kinds of organizations have initiatory rights that kind of get you in, right, or orientations that get you in. I can't tell you the details of my fraternity life, but that occurred as well, or maybe in your company and so forth, right? But as a Christian, what is the initiatory right into the church universal and the church local? It's baptism. That's what it is. This is why baptism and membership, I believe, should be linked it doesn't make sense to baptize someone to make them a member of the universal church, but then not make them a member of the local church. Like that makes very little sense to me. And so our faith church elders, by the way, we're going to be working on this in the months ahead. We're going to study the scriptures. And from my perspective, hopefully we'll land in a, a new place where we can kind of bring some of these pieces together. We're going to consider our young people too uh, as we do that. But it's not only baptism. It's also the Lord's Supper, something we have the privilege of doing every week here at Faith Church, right? Baptism offers the initial assurance. The Lord's Supper offers that insurance on a weekly, on an ongoing basis. We take from one bread because we are part of one body. We serve people who are part of the body of Christ. We shouldn't serve people who are not part of the body of Christ, right? That makes sense. That's why our pastors, you've noticed we fence the table. We try to make it clear this meal is for Christians. We're not trying to be uh, exclusive just for exclusive sake. We're trying to really protect the purity of the gospel and the church. That's why we're doing that. And we want to be welcoming and inviting to someone that's not a Christian as well. Again, this is why church membership is absolutely foundational. At its core, it's our affirmation and our oversight of one another's professions of faith and discipleship in Jesus. That's what membership is. Jesus didn't leave behind a, a mass of self-affirming individuals, one-time decision makers who have a private faith. He left behind the church. And this church has authority to bind, right? Which means recognize membership, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. So baptism, you can think about baptism as the front door into the house and the Lord's Supper as the weekly family meal. When we guard who is baptized, when we guard who becomes a member, when we guard who takes the Lord's Supper, we are affirming people who have lived transformed and repentant lives. We're making sure that our public profession of faith has integrity, right? We're fighting against things like false conversions. We're fighting against things like Christian nominalism and complacency. And like I said earlier, we are preserving the purity of the gospel so that outsiders will be drawn in. Listen, when we do that, it's not just an exclusive club thing. We're actually making the church and the gospel in Jesus more attractive to those who are coming in or connected to you that are outside of the church. Now, I want to briefly... I want to briefly address parents, okay, and maybe grandparents as well. And I want to share with you my own thinking and my wife's thinking around how to think about the ordinances and our children, okay? So this is not the, old, the official elder view of faith church. Don't hear it as that. This is my view, my wife's view, and I just want to give this to you as something to ponder and consider, okay? So I've got a daughter here who has asked us about getting baptized and taking the Lord's Supper. It's really encouraging. Um, it seems like she has repented of her sins and trusted in Christ alone for forgiveness. And it seems like there's some genuine fruit there, but we're waiting. Uh, we've asked her to wait. We want to give it some time. And, and once she professes her faith publicly and is recognized by this church through baptism, that's when we're going to say, hey, why don't you take the Lord's Supper? It's a good time to take the Lord's Supper. She's got to come in through the front door before joining us for the family meal. And I think that's coming soon for my eldest daughter. Some of you know her. 
But friends, again, this isn't necessarily Faith Church's official practice. It's ours. Our elders are going to wrestle over this in the coming months. But I just want to ask you to consider that. I think this is really important stuff. And uh, you know, we want to use the keys properly. Okay, that's just another way of saying that. So the first thing, how do we use the keys? We want to recognize regenerate membership. Number two, this might sound kind of obvious and like, why are we talking about this? Why is this a point? But here's my second way to use the keys. Be a faithful church member. Be a faithful church member. Okay, what does that mean? Does it mean like just be a nice guy? You know, share the gospel? Give to the church? Don't do stupid things? Well, yeah, that's all part of it. But let's answer the question in light of the keys, okay? In light of the keys of the kingdom. What does it mean to be a faithful church member in light of the keys of the kingdom? And I'm drawing this from an article we actually print out and we put in our prospective member packet. So those of you that have come through our membership process, you've seen this article. It's by Jonathan Lehman, and he's got like seven or eight responsibilities of a church member. So I'm going to kind of walk through some of that. It's going to feel like a shot. Okay, so... Very quickly, how do, how do you become a faithful church member? Attend church. You're all here. You're like, okay, I'm doing that. Well, let's think about this a little bit, okay? What, is, what does it mean to attend the church? Well, this is the gathering of those who are affirmed by the congregation as true confessors of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the gathering of more. There's perhaps outsiders that are coming as well, and we welcome anybody. This is the place where we grow spiritually, to where we love one another, where we sit under God's word, under the Messiah's word. You can't enjoy your family if you don't show up to the weekly family reunion, right? Secondly, another way to be a faithful church member, know the gospel. Friends, can you articulate the gospel in 90 seconds? Can you articulate the gospel in 30 seconds? Can you identify what a true convert looks like? Maybe the opposite. Can you identify what a false convert looks like? Can you articulate what a life of a Christian ought to be, a life of ongoing faith and repentance? Give a picture of that. So you want to know the gospel. Thirdly, attend congregational meetings. We've got one coming up on September 14th, and I want to urge you, if you're a member of Faith Church, to come. Now, I'm not just trying to promote that particular meeting on a Wednesday night in the middle of the week in September. I think this is really crucial. You can't do your job if you don't show up to the office, right? In our congregational meetings, we do important business. You have to consider and vote on matters related to the keys, right? True gospel confession. There might be uh, considerations and votes and discussions around our statement of faith or our doctrine and our practices, but also true gospel confessors. There might be discussion and consideration around our prospective members or uh, a little spotlight on our new members. I'd love to see every faith church more involved in recognizing and voting on prospective members. Now, what does that look like? Well, we've got, we've got a new pastor here who's going to help us think through that. Okay, so attend congregational meetings. Disciple other members. Okay, keep your thumb on Matthew 16 and flip over. Go to your right. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. We talked about this uh, earlier in the summer. This is such a crucial passage. So Ephesians chapter 4, after Galatians, before Philippians, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I just want to point out a couple verses. Keep your thumb on Matthew 16. We're going to come back to that. I want you to look at verse 11 of chapter 4. And he, God himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So here's the leaders of the church. We have a particular role, verse 12, equipping the saints, that's you guys, for the work of ministry 
to build up the body of Christ. There's the goal. Look at verse 16. From him, that's from Jesus, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Do you see that? The church builds itself up as each part, as each member does its job. What's your part? What's your job? Well, according to Ephesians chapter 4, it's the ministry of words. It's bringing God's word to bear in the context of relationships. It's speaking the truth in love. You know, it's easy to think that in order to do ministry, fill a slot, attend an event, jump into a program, and that might be true, absolutely could be true, but I think a better way to think about ministry, you know, is, is this. In, in order for me to do ministry, all I need is another person. If you've got a Bible, if you've got a friendship, you can do ministry. This is the role each of us plays to build up this body. So, so don't begin with the question, what's the next event? Start with the question, who needs spiritual help? Who could I disciple? Who could I mentor? Who could I do spiritual good to? Start with that question. So again, we're, we're thinking about um, practical ways that we can be a faithful member of faith church. Here's the last way is to share the gospel with outsiders. If the church is an embassy, then you and me were ambassadors of this heavenly embassy known as faith church, right? And as, as ambassadors, we summon those who are outside the church to King Jesus by way of faith and repentance. We hold out that gospel of hope. And so our prayer is to recognize, to bind new confessors to the church, right? That's what we're praying for. That's what we're hoping for. Okay, so again, that's the second way to use the keys. We want to be faithful church members. And, and here's a third way, third subpoint under the second question. Practice church discipline. Practice church discipline. This is what it means, by the way, to loose. We've already talked about what it means to bind. What does it mean to loose? Flip back to Matthew 18, and we see it in this passage. There's a, a front door to uh, to this, which is binding, which is membership. There's a back door to this, and we don't like to talk about this very much, and that's loosing. That's church discipline. Now, when you hear that phrase, church discipline, what comes to mind? Maybe you can think of former churches that didn't do a good job of church discipline. Maybe they were uh, too aggressive, and maybe their leadership was abusive in some way, and so you're, you have kind of a bad memory of a church trying to do uh, church uh, discipline. Or maybe you can think of churches in the past where there was sin in the church, but there was no church discipline. And you're kind of like, I don't think either of those is a good you know, direction to go in. And I would affirm that. Maybe you immediately go to excommunication, you know, the last step in this process. But if the church is functioning well, the church will be practicing steps one and two all the time. You know, individuals who are gently rebuking each other and speaking the truth in love and exhorting one another, right? You may not need to get to the final step because steps one and two are happening. That's kind of the design of Jesus. The brother who says, hey, that, have, that may have been too harsh. The sister who says, you know, brother, I think you're doing great, but here's something that you've neglected. I want you to consider this. If members take their role seriously, this sort of formative discipline will be happening. And it would save churches a lot of heartache, right? Imagine a church that doesn't practice this. Would that be a church you would want to be a part of? You know, it might have a cheerful disposition, uh, a, a nice feel to its culture. But are the people actually being discipled by the word? 
Is holiness and purity taken seriously? Are, are men and women challenged to keep repenting and to keep believing? Never in a harsh or uncaring manner, always in the context of warm, loving friendships, right? Can you think of a time in your life when someone interrupted your pattern of sin with a loving rebuke? And, and, and you wonder sometimes, like, what if they hadn't done that? What if they had chickened out? Where would I be, right? So my prayer for Faith Church is that we would be a church filled with hundreds of thick friendships, thick spiritual friendships, friendships that are real and deep and fun and enjoyable, but also serious, serious about sin, where people practice a sort of loving intrusion and careful inquisitiveness. Heaven forbid we have to get to the later steps of discipline, but if we do, Jesus has given us the keys, notice, to excommunicate. You know what that word, where that word comes from? Excommunicate. It means to bar someone from communion, from the Lord's Supper, to bar them from membership. Again, we're not looking for perfection as we're making these evaluations. We're looking for repentance. But sometimes the congregation, after walking through these initial couple steps, may conclude this person is no longer acting like a Christian. They're no longer a credible confessor of Jesus. And, and I know you're thinking this. I mean, this wow, this has got to be really hard and really painful for a church and really messy. Yeah, I've been part of churches in the past that have gone through these steps, and it's extremely, excruciatingly painful. But friends, it is not only what Jesus has called us to do, but remember, this sort of action is using the keys in such a way where the purity of the gospel, the purity of the church is protected. And that's a good thing. So, talked about the what are the keys. We talked about the how. How do we use the keys? Let's talk about why are the keys important. Let's revisit our hypothetical church. What happens when a church doesn't use the keys? What happens when they're not clear on the doctrine of conversion, when they're not clear on our role as a church to recognize true confessors? Well, you might have a Tony who slips into leadership without the congregation recognizing him as a true convert. You might have a Michelle who's teaching kids without the congregation realizing that her doctrine and her teaching is harmful. You might have a bunch of divorce situations which just sort of happen because biblical discipline isn't part of the process. You know, we are so used to this, this kind of private, personal, solo Christianity in the modern world. And friends, we must be more acquainted with a church Christianity, a corporate Christianity, a Jesus Christianity, as you can see from these passages. Let me share an illustration I've shared before. I, I find this helpful. It's about a winter day. It's far from right now, but bear with me, right? So just think of mid-January. Local churches should be like a bakery on a cold, snowy day. Whiffs of bread and hot chocolate wafting outside. Children pressing their noses against the window pane. Yes, the glass is a barrier, but without that glass, the warmth is kind of disperse out, right? No one would know there was anything good inside, but it's a transparent barrier. You can see inside. You can see some of what's going on, and there's a door to the inside. When someone who's not a Christian encounters faith churches, it kind of feel like standing at that window, not staring at a brick wall. Absolutely not. They should feel, though, the warmth of our love. They should see the depth of our relationships as they witness the people who have no reason to love each other, loving each other. 
They should taste the richness, the goodness of the gospel as God's word is faithfully preached week after week. They should hear the sounds of a joyful community. And they should see the door, who is Christ. Friends, what happens if you put the keys of the kingdom aside and allow our American independent sensibilities to rule the day? What happens when the bakery doesn't have glass? The picture of the church gets a little fuzzy, right? The, the picture of the gospel gets a little fuzzy. The smells, the warmth, the attractiveness of the true church gets diffused, doesn't it? Tony is encouraged to teach even though his life is not marked by repentance. Michelle is allowed to lead children even though her ethics don't line up with the Bible and the gospel. The spiritual landscape of the church is strewn with single men and women previously divorced like a war zone. And they're hurting and they're lost and they feel abandoned. And they have received little help from a church that refuses to use the keys to protect them, to protect the purity of the gospel, to protect the church. Friends, it's the church. It's the church that Jesus uses to keep Christians Christian. In fact, this is precisely what Jesus meant when he said here, on this rock, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. He's not only saying that he will preserve his church, he's telling us how. He's saying that those who use the keys will help to preserve the church. So we gotta use the keys, y'all. Gotta use the keys. First, to make sure Tony is an actually regenerate Christian. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just playing church because that's all he knows. And if he is a Christian, who's going to rebuke him for his sin? Who will help him to repent and grow? And what about Michelle? Let's use the keys to make sure her confession is a true confession of our gospel faith. Who's willing to talk to her about this? Who's willing to care for her through this? And friends, if Tony, if Michelle don't repent, if they don't recant, are we willing to use the keys to loose them into the world? to say, we can no longer affirm your Christian faith. Praying, of course, that God's going to restore them back to himself and back to the church. What about hurting marriages? What about divisive members? What about those who gossip and slander? What about those who struggle with sexual sin or idolatry or neglect or anger or laziness or marked selfishness or stubborn pride? In some ways, this is all of us, right? We all have sin that doesn't always line up with our confession, right? Who is going to help us grow in Christ? The church, the church, you, me, together. Friends, we can have, we have an um, incredible job to do. Again, like I said earlier, I want to raise the bar of what it means to be a member of Faith Church. I want to give dignity to that. I want you to love being a member, and I want you to see more clearly after the sermon, after the passage, the instruction, I want you to see more clearly your job description. And I want you to be joyful about that. Because here's the deal. It's, this is not just for pastors. Elders cannot do this alone. We need you. We absolutely need you. You've got a distinct role in helping other Christians grow and stay in the faith. You know, it's easy to be a consumer. It's easy to walk in here and walk out of here. It's easy to come to the show to get fed and walk into your week. But, but friends, what if you took your role as a member of Faith Church more seriously? What if you got involved in recognizing true confessors, in discipling true confessors, in disciplining those who are not acting like true confessors? If together we can put these keys to use 
faith church will become healthier, stronger, more influential in the right way, and more attractive to a world that is desperate for something different. We don't do this for our own glory or for our own props. We do this for the glory of God, right? For the spread of the gospel, but also for our own good. Amen. Let's take a moment of silence now to consider the passage to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper.